0: Chapter 10, A Distant Melody The train left Bulawayo on April 28, 1975, and headed south. During his previous train ride to Rhodesia, Sam had gotten sick from coal smoke. It was approaching winter again, and Sam was dreading the ride and breathing coal smoke and fumes for five days. However, the weather was cool and the windows were kept closed. His cabin had a heater in it, with, which actually blew warm air. He huddled by the register and let the warm air blow up his pant legs. It felt sweeter than any feeling he could remember. Every few seconds, his body shivered with delight. On the second day, late in the afternoon, the train suddenly lurched. Sam felt the wheels beneath his car lock up and scream in protest. He grabbed onto the seat for support. A series of sharp jolts was followed by his car pitching to the left. For a moment, it felt like the car might roll onto its side, and then it settled back. A series of minor jolts followed in rapid succession as the cars behind slammed into the couplings. A large escape of steam roared from the engine a few cars ahead, and the heater quit blowing hot air. That made Sam feel like crying. Simultaneously, the the lights in the train went out. Sam watched out the window as armed guards ran to positions beside the train and patrolled back and forth. Sam pushed open the sliding door to his cabin and took a single step into the hallway beyond. Other people were emerging into the hall, some pressing bandages to their heads and other injured areas. He stooped to look out the windows and could see, clearly see, the engine lying nearly on its side a short distance from his car. The train had derailed. The car immediately following the engine was nearly on its side. His car was the first one still upright. Nearly an hour later, the conductor came through his car. He explained what had happened. The rails had been sabotaged and the engine was hopelessly derailed they had radioed for assistance and expected another train by morning the conductor said people from the followed forward cars had to be evacuated and asked if some could join sam sam had a private berth but his room included four seats and four beds he agreed without hesitation the church had bought the three extra tickets to his cabin to give him privacy the thinking was rather than sending another missionary along To be his companion, keeping him isolated on the train would serve the same purpose. Consequently, Sam had three empty seats in a nearly full train. In just a few minutes, the conductor introduced him to two young women, Marcia and Melody McIlvaney. The girls were sisters traveling to boarding school in Cape Town. Both were frightened and refused to share his cabin. Marcia was 18 and Melody 16. They insisted that they would have nothing less than a private cabin. I understand your concerns the conductor said with thinly veiled impatience. However, there are only 3 sleeper cars on this train and yours is lying on its side as you recall. The third one is full and this one has two rooms of space. The other one has two young men your age also traveling away to school. This gentleman is an American missionary, a Mormon. They have the highest moral decency and I trust you would be best served here than in the other with the other two gentlemen. Who are in the process of getting drunk as we speak there simply are no other options so saying the conductor threw up his hands without waiting for a reply and stomped away the girls stood outside sam's cabin still uncertain what to do sam correctly interpreted their faces as um, the look on their faces as terror and stood on impulse forgive me i'm not thinking clearly sam said i'll go spend the night with the college students and you two take my cabin that will be better i think "'Then you won't be afraid to have me here with you.' "'Marcia nodded and Melody shook her head. "'They both wore long brown riding coats that covered them from neck to ankle, "'and huge wool caps and gloves. "'They were dressed warm enough for Alaska, let alone Africa. "'The few soft curls of hair that hung from their hats were light brown. "'He could see very little of their faces because of their large caps.' "'It was Melody, the younger, who finally spoke. "'Her voice quivered as she spoke, but the words were calm. "'No, I should be ashamed to put you out of your own cabin to accommodate us. "'No, I think not. "'You are kind to offer, and your kindness settles my fears somewhat. "'I think perhaps we can trust an American missionary, nay?' "'She asked, turning to her sister. "'She spoke with a musical, lilting accent some British people acquire after living in Rhodesia. "'Her accent almost sounded Australian.' Her sister merely walked past Sam, sat down primly, and turned her face toward the window. Sam couldn't tell if she was disappointed, angry, or terrified. Melody sat beside her and pulled off her large wool cap. A tidal wave of hair spilled out over her shoulders and flowed nearly to her waist. Sam was amazed so much hair could have been up inside that cap. She pushed the flows of hair away to reveal an unusually beautiful face her eyes were dark brown her nose small and turned upward her lips were full and seemed as if they might be comfortable with laughter and smiles under different circumstances he would have found himself smitten by her beauty the thought didn't occur to him that her beauty was anything other than good looks which under the circumstances was meaningless to him since he was a missionary before sitting he pulled the door to their cabin closed and latched it he took the seat opposite the girls the cabin was sufficiently small that their knees were nearly touching Sam felt a chill seeping into the cabin and pulled his jacket from his bag. Without heat in the train, it was going to be a cold night. It was only a few hours before dark, and without the engine running, there would be no electrical lights in the train. The guards were building large fires on both sides of the train to keep the night from overtaking them entirely. Before there was time for an awkward silence to develop, the lock on the door spun open, and the conductor shoved the girls' bags into the cabin, banging them against their legs. Sam helped Melody stack the bags in the luggage rack overhead. Amid the luggage were two violin cases. He picked up the first and held it for a few moments before carefully placing it on top of the other luggage. Melody cocked her head inquisitively. Do you play, she asked? Not really. A close friend showed me a few things and I tinkered around, but I've never had any lessons or anything. I see, she replied, disappointed in her voice. There was a meaningful pause before she continued. We are going to away to continue our studies on the violin. Papa wants us to pay, play professionally. Mama played beautifully before. Anyway, we are going to school at Jan Smoot's Conservatory of Music, so you might say we love and hate the bloody things. This earned a snort from Marcia. In this culture, bloody was the curse word, uh, was a curse worthy of a hardened criminal, not a proper young woman on her way to boarding school. Melody seemed unrepentant, and Sam smiled in response. Good, she responded resolutely. "'You're not a prude. I just wanted to see if you were going to lecture me on cursing.' "'Did I pass the test or fail it?' Sam asked suspiciously. "'Fail,' Marcia muttered simultaneously with Melody's past. "'Sam chuckled. At that instant, a rifle fired, and then another. "'With each report, Marcia slumped lower and lower in her seat, "'and Melody flinched as if she herself had been shot. "'Sam wasn't sure whether to be scared or curious.' After a moment, another detonation sounded from the other side of the train. Sam could hear someone in the car behind him beginning to cry. It sounded like a small child. Someone cursed in the distance, and something banged inside the train. It sounded more like someone threw some baggage around than anything more dangerous, but it had an electric effect on the passengers. Panic seemed to be palpable, and people were running in the hall outside the door. Voices shouted, demanding explanations. Melody looked up at him anxiously. A tear slipped down her cheek, and at that moment the door to their cabin was wrenched open. Two young men teetered in the opening. One had a bottle clutched tightly in his hand. They were drunk. Come to see if you ladies, he slurred sarcastically, needed some comforting. Go away, Kurt, Marcia said sternly. We don't in- want anything to do with you. Why not, he demanded. Oh, I see. You got some other dandy little twaddle within." he said motion towards sam don't be rude kurt melody demanded this gentleman is a mormon missionary and much more pleasant company than you and your liquor the latter she said with a poisonous tone to her voice yes well i promised your father i'd take t- care of you too you are coming back to my cabin we can keep each other safe and warm and whatever else comes to mind the man behind kurt laughed drunkenly in a single motion kurt stepped into the room and grabbed melody's arm she struggled to free herself but could not He pulled her to her feet, and exactly that same time Sam came to his feet, his heart pounding, his fist doubled. He was furious, and every muscle was tensed for battle. He took a step forward, but was brought short by a blow to the chest, not from any visible source. It felt as if he had run into a wall of solid air. It brought no pain, but had the effect of completely stopping him. A feeling of calm swept over him, and he raised his arm to the square. Kurt was shouting and Melody screaming protest so that neither of them heard him say in the name of Jesus Christ and by virtue of the Melchizedek priesthood, I command you to come out of him and trouble us no further. Whether Kurt heard it or not, it had an immediate effect. He suddenly released his hold on Melody and staggered back, shaking his head and, a f- dazed. He turned his eyes toward them and saw Sam's confusion and remorse in them. No, and Sam saw confusion and remorse in them. Melody, what? Kurt stammered as Sam turned him toward the door and helped him out. In seconds, it was over and the door was shut. Sam fiddled with the locks until he found one that he could not be opened from the outside. He slammed it home with finality. He was getting tired of the door busting open. Besides, there was nearly pandemonium in the hall. People were running in both directions, knocking another one another down in the narrow passage. When he sat again, Melody had a look of confusion on her face, but Marcia was staring at him with piercing brown eyes. He realized that she had heard every word. Without preamble, she said, You cast an evil spirit out of him, didn't you? It was not a question. Sam didn't know what to say. He wanted to explain to tell them about the priesthood. He didn't know where to start. Just then, another rifle fired, and someone started fighting in the hall. The train jolted as bodies grappled not far from their door. Men cursed, and the sound of blows echoed in the train. On impulse, Sam stood and quickly strode to the violins. May I? he asked. Melody nodded, and Sam retrieved one of the violin cases. He opened it to find an expensive instrument, neatly packed in velvet. He picked it up and strummed the strings. The instrument was in perfect tune. It smelled of wax, and he tucked it under his chin. He pulled the bow across the strings and made a long, solemn tone. Then he slowly began to play the only tune that came to mind, Abide With Me, Tis Even tied. He played slowly, carefully, his fingers unsure what to do next. He was grateful to find that even though... His fingers, may be unsure, his soul was not, and the music swelled within him. Flowing out of the little violin, he played with feeling, and peace settled over him. Somewhere in the middle of the song, the brawl in the hallway stopped abruptly. Sam switched to another hymn and played with deep feeling. After two or three hymns, he stopped. The silence in the train was almost as if everything outside the door of the cabin ceased to exist. Even the crying in the adjacent cabin seemed... had stopped. From far away, a small, frightened voice called... Sing Amazing Grace. Sam loved that song. He played it with a sense of joy and was vaguely aware of voices singing in the distance. Marcia stood and retrieved the other cases he played. She lovingly lifted the instrument and turned it quietly. Afterward, she handed it to Melody, who took it under her chin. Sam began the second verse as Melody played a quiet harmony. It was the most beautiful thing he had ever heard. He watched her eyes close and felt the power of her love for the instrument she held. She played with great skill; her touch sure and masterful. She allowed the harmony to flow unrestrained. The complexity was unabashed beauty of, and unabashed beauty of her made, uh, unabashed beauty of her music made Sam's contribution seem rather amateurish. Yet her powerful music was like a full orchestration, the perfect accompaniment to Sam's simple melody. Another request came from outside the train. The name of the song was French and unfamiliar to Sam. Melody smiled and pulled the bow across the strings in quick, sure strokes. A joyful Melody danced through the train, lifting hearts and causing toes to tap everywhere. After the tune capered to its conclusion, someone requested, "'I am a child of God.' Sam knew the person must be a Latter-day Saint, and it warmed his heart. He lifted the bow and played with a joyful heart. Melody listened carefully and joined him on the second verse, again quietly playing harmony. It was breathtakingly beautiful. The person who had made the request began to sing in a powerful, tenor voice the words of the precious hymn rolled through the train like a summer breeze peace settled upon them few even noticed the few rifle shots salmon melody certainly did not all they heard was the music in their souls as it spilled from the strings they played for over an hour mostly answering requests shouted from their unseen audience they played until someone rapped at the door it was the steward who handed them a tray of bread cheese and mineral water a single candle burned in the middle of the tray. Darkness had descended completely during their plane, and the candle brought a cheery glow to the room. As they unfolded the table from the wall, the steward explained that the rifle shots were intended to keep lions and hyenas at bay. If they did not fire periodically, they would sneak upon the train. He told them to ignore the intermittent shots. Sam accepted the explanation, yet wondered what threat wild animals could be as long as they re- remained inside the train. He wondered if there wasn't another explanation. They were hungry and the food was unexpected and welcome. They ate in silence. By now it was dark outside and people were settling down. Sam could hear others pulling the bunks down in the adjoining cabins. The steward came and showed them how to pull down their beds. There was a moment of awkwardness after he left. Sam excused himself and walked the length of the train. Candles had been left burning at intervals in the hallway, with darkness on every side being haltingly, uh, yeah, haltingly head back by the flickering candle glow. Sam felt as if he were inside a medieval castle. Everywhere he went, people were humming to themselves and speaking in hushed voices, a sweet contrast to the previous sounds of terror. The effect of the music upon the people had been magical. They, of course, had no idea that Sam and Melody had played the music. It was somewhat mystical to walk the halls, nearly invisible to the darkness, and enjoy the peaceful effect of his music. What the people could not guess, though, Sam thought, was the peace that they felt did not come from the music at all that came from God. The music had only opened their hearts to the divine. Praising the music for calming their souls would have been like applauding a velvet curtain at the performance. The curtain only opened their view. It was the master musician who performed the miracle. When Sam returned, uh, Marcia and Melody were both in bed, their coats and dresses hung on hooks on the wall. He pulled off his shoes and tie and climbed into bed fully clothed. There were extra blankets, and in a few minutes he was warm and surprisingly comfortable. He could hear the girls breathing slowly and deepening. deepening, He blew out the candle. From the darkness, a soft voice asked him, What did you do, Kurt? What did you do to Kurt? He could not be sure which of them asked the question, but he was fairly certain it was Marcia. I relieved him of his motivation to hurt, Sam responded. You mean you cast out an evil spirit from him, nay? She asked, using a colloquial expression of polite inquiry, which roughly meant, is this not true? That's one way to put it, I guess, Sam replied. He knew evil spirits afflicted people, but was completely aware of his imperfect knowledge concerning them. This was the only the second time he had used the priesthood to cast one out, and he was not exactly sure about what he had done. He only knew that he did what he was prompted to do. Why? Why did do that instead of fighting him? You are bigger and look capable... Sam thought about this, and it was actually a good question, and he didn't have an immediate answer. When an answer did come, it was just as informative to him as it was to Marcia. To be a disciple is to do the bidding of the Master. I did as I was directed to do, by the authority of him who directed me, nothing more. There was a long pause before Melody asked. I didn't know anyone could command evil spirits to depart in these times. I thought that all ended with the Bible times. So Melody was awake as well. Sam waited until the right answer formed in his heart, and it was important for him to give them the right explanation. It did, he replied. It was lost shortly after that, and it was not on the earth again until a new prophet was called in 1820. As a missionary and elder of that restored church, I hold the authority of the priesthood, which has been passed down from that new prophet to this day. It is a wonderful thing, and if you like, I will tell you about it in the morning. Silence reigned for a few minutes, then he heard, Sam? Yes, Melody? Can such an explanation wait until until the morning? I think I should not be able to sleep for wondering what this all means. Would it be too much of an imposition to ask you to explain it tonight, please? Sam was still quietly explaining the restoration of the gospel as the sky began to lighten outside. He realized with a start that he had been teaching and testifying the entire night. He started to apologize as he heard Marcia yawn. But they both urged him to continue. He concluded by bearing his testimony and promising the girls that he would continue after a few more hours' sleep. It was the most peaceful sleep he had ever had. The holy Spirit blessed their little cabin with the sweet presence, and they slept the sleep of angels. Sam awoke with a start to a sudden volley of gunfire. He rolled from his bunk and hopped to the floor. He was surprised to see his breath in the morning air. He raised a blind, just as another volley of gunfire exploded from the small circle of men guarding the train. At that moment, he heard something thud against the train and a split second later, the distant report of a gun. The guards answered with a volley. Silence followed for a few seconds before a splatter of bullets again thudded into the train. He heard people shouting in adjoining cars and several people screamed. "'Marcia and Melody tumbled from their bunks "'and pulled their dresses on over their heads. "'Sam kept his back turned, intent on watching the day dawn "'and the new drama outside his window. "'He noticed for the first time that they were in a large valley "'surrounded by low, rolling hills. "'The train track cut through the lush desert "'on a raised bed of red gravel about three feet high. "'A short distance beyond the gravel pad, "'a bush began abruptly. "'What everyone called bushes were actually small trees.' "'each smaller, somewhat taller than a man. "'The larger bushes were a milky olive green "'with darker green plants growing in clumps closer to the ground. "'The ground was covered with a patchwork of grasses and wildflowers. "'The guards were kneeling on the gravel pad "'to give them the advantage of the height. "'They had brought some wooden crates on the train "'to act as a barrier to protect them.' The closest guard was only about six feet from his window. While he was observing this, he spotted a figure darting between the bushes in the distance. The guards responded by firing toward the gunfire. Seconds later, the sound of breaking glass was followed by a distant report. Without warning, about ten men suddenly appeared in the bush, fired at the train, and quickly disappeared. Bullets ricocheted through the air, and glass shattered on the train. A guard near Sam's window lurched backwards, spun in the air, and landed on his face, a red stain quickly forming on his side. He thrashed on the ground for a moment before rolling over onto his back. A similar strain was forming on his shoulder near his neck. Sam could clearly see his, pain pinched, his face pinched in pain. The man pulled a white cloth from his pocket and pressed it against his shoulder. It quickly turned round another volley from the bush, smashed against the train, and the guards began backing from their wooden crates. They grabbed their wooden, uh, wounded comrade and retreated to beneath the train. At least they would have the big steel wheels to give them some safety. Sam? Sam had momentarily forgotten about the two girls and had turned toward them. They were huddled on the floor, against the door, and far from the windows as possible. As they watched, Melody pulled Marcia's head onto her chest and held her, stroking her hair. With each gunshot, Marcia flinched as if she herself had been shot. Marcia was immobilized by fear, while her younger sister seemed grimly determined. Melody's face was a sturdy uh, no, was a study in conflict between terror and icy cold determination. It created an expression on her face something like a young mother might have while confronting a charging lion to protect her child. Sam, aren't you afraid? Melody asked incredulous incredulous blah incredulously her young voice quivering it suddenly occurred to him that it was unwise for him to stand by the window and he knelt down he wondered for a moment if he was just too stupid or afraid or too american to comprehend that people actually attack passenger trains maybe he thought he was watching tv and the violence would not get past the glass of the window melody's question was a good one and he pondered his feelings when he knew the answer he spoke it no he said honestly i'm not afraid At that moment, he heard a whistling sound that grew louder and higher in pitch until it ended in a deafening explosion near the train engine. The entire train shuddered and jolted from the impact. It was the loudest thing Sam had ever heard, and he wondered if he was now permanently deafened. There were only two cars from the engine, and the explosion sounded as if it actually hit the derailed engine. Seconds later, another whistling sound arched toward the rear of the train. It landed further away, but it's... But still, the train bounced on the tracks. It seemed their attackers had bigger weapons than rifles. The obvious occurred to Sam and to everyone who was not too terrified to think. Their attackers had no particular interest in capturing them alive. Why? Why are you not afraid? Melody asked, ignoring their explosions. He wondered how to answer the question and waited for the right answer to form in his heart. When it came... It answered his own question as well as hers. When I made the decision to be a missionary for the Lord, my father gave me a blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. My dad is a high priest in the church, a former bishop, and a man I know to be close to God. And among other things, he blessed me that if I was obedient to the commandments and the promptings of the Holy Spirit, that I would serve a wonderful mission, bless many lives, and return home safely. As he spoke those words, I felt the Holy Spirit confirm their truth. I'm not afraid because I have implicit faith in the promises made to me in his name. Melody pondered this for another bomb, as another bomb whistled directly overhead and exploded on the far side of the train, not far from their car. The glass on the opposite side of the train shattered with a roar, and the train rocked against the explosion. Finally, she said, I envy your faith, Elder Mahoy. I have always believed in Jesus, yet my faith is not sufficient to bring me to a sense of your safety. I guess my faith just isn't strong enough to know he will keep us safe. Many people believe in Christ, Sam replied. Not many are able to believe to believe Christ. I don't understand the difference, Marcia said, turning frightened eyes toward him. Sam was glad to see she was listening. Many people believe in Christ and that he is the Savior. But what they what they don't believe is that he will keep his promises. He promises us great blessings if we obey him and keep his commandments. Many people don't keep commandments because they don't think he will bless them as promised. They doubt he will give them something as exciting and wonderful as what they think they are getting from their sins, so they keep sinning. If we really believed Christ, he would trust. we would trust him to keep his promises. I have the added comfort of having my father give me a blessing in Christ's name, in which I also have great faith. I believe Christ, I guess you might say. Okay, I guess I understand that if we truly believe in Christ... Then we should believe he keeps his promises. That feels true, I guess. I wish I had the blessing from your father, too, and your faith to believe in it, Melody replied, her eyes lowered. At that exact moment, a blaze of machine gunfire erupted like a roar of a demon. Bullets impacted the train from one end to the other. The glass exploded in the cabin. Unfortunately, no, fortunately, it was safety glass and did not cut them and they were suddenly buried in an avalanche of broken glass. Sam could see a half dozen bullet holes in the walls, not far above their heads. Marcia buried her head in Melody's bosom and trembled there. She was too frightened to scream. Melody cocked her head to one side and studied Sam through squinted eyes, as if trying to see through him. You really aren't afraid, are you? she observed. Sam did not answer that question. He was thinking of her earlier statement. "'Melody, I hold the same priesthood power that my father does. "'If you want, I could give you a blessing, too. "'I don't know what its content will be. "'That's up to the Lord, but if, but I know it will be true, "'and I know it will help you.' "'Marcia raised her head and turned her tear-filled eyes toward him. "'Oh, please, please could you give us your father's blessing,' she implored. "'Melody merely nodded and smiled weakly. "'Sam crawled the short distance to separate them "'until their knees were touching.' He reached out and placed a single hand on Marcia's head. She trembled beneath his hand, and she lowered her head onto Melody's chest. Marcia, in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Melchizedek Priesthood I hold, I give you a blessing of comfort and peace. Fear not the battle of men or the harm they can do. You will live many years beyond this day, and you will see your dreams fulfilled. You will become a noted musician and a teacher of music. In time, you will reflect upon this day as a happy memory and tell it with wonder to your children. About the day God saved you from sure destruction by the power of his arm and simple faith in his love. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Marcia looked up an expression of wonder in her eyes. Since Melody was closer, Sam placed both hands on her head. And he did so, he was filled with glowing warmth and powerful sense of her magnificent spirit. The impressions that crowded his mind were so sudden and powerful that he gasped involuntarily. It was as if he knew Melody perhaps had always known her and this sudden realization took his breath away it took a moment for him to speak melody in the name of jesus christ and by the power of the priesthood i hold i also give you a blessing of peace and comfort you are a noble daughter of heavenly father and a precious spirit in his sight in order for you to fulfill the measure of your creation you will be called upon to endure many trials the present difficulties being a mere shadow of what will follow you are the first and the last you are the last to inherit the curse of your fathers and the first to triumph over it. Your quest will take you to many nations and bring you full circle. When you finally find what you seek, you will have returned to this moment and it will bring you joy. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. She looked deeply into Sam's wet eyes as he took his hands from her head. Her o- her eyes were pulled with tears and when she blinked, they coursed down her cheeks. A deep feeling unexpectedly stirred within Sam, which... He suppressed almost without noticing it. He could not help but feel a familiar sweetness and purity of Melody's spirit, and it thrilled him in a way he had never before experienced. Sam, your blessing both comforts and frightens me. Do you understand the words? Sam merely shook his head, no. I I thought not, she continued. But I felt the warmth and the peace. I believe that what you say will be, and I will it will bring me joy. I think you gave me part of Melody's I think you gave part of Melody's blessing to me, Marcia said. She's the great musician, and I'm the one who's always getting into trouble. Her voice was brighter, almost peaceful. Sam smiled, but did not answer her. He had given them the blessing the Lord intended. He reached for his scriptures in the seat behind him, opened it to a blank page in the back, and wrote down the two blessings as nearly as he could remember them. When he finished, he signed it, wrote the mission home address beneath his name, carefully tore it from the scriptures, and handed it to Melody. She and Marcia read it together. At that moment, an amplified voice boomed across the desert. The voice spoke in heavily accented English. Oddly, Sam thought the accent sounded almost Spanish. You will, now, you will be now throwing your guns away now. We have much bombs and will kill you all very much badly. Immediately. Surrender now. The guards beneath the train responded by firing. The detonation seemed to come from directly beneath their... Train car. They fired again and again, and a hail of machine gun bullets riddled the train. Some of them hit below the windows and did not penetrate the thick steel of the old train cars. At that moment, another bomb whistled toward them and exploded outside their window, showering them with dirt through the open windows. Sam's ears were ringing, and he found himself huddled with the girls. They pressed themselves against him and tried to make themselves small. Another bomb exploded a distance away. And then another, Sam did not hear the guards from beneath the train return fire. Sam could hear men shouting in a foreign language outside the train, while sporadic gunfire came from beneath them. At that moment, a machine gun of much larger caliber belched with a deafening roar. It was so obviously a larger gun that it made the former machine gun sound like a toy. This gun spat bullets in a slower, more booming roar of heavy weaponry. The gun belched in short, authoritative bursts. Sam knew such a gun would easily penetrate the steel of an old train, yet no bullets hit the train. All he could hear were the shouted commands and curses of the men outside. Suddenly, an engine roared a short distance away, and the big machine gun belched. This new vehicle sped past their car as the big gun bellowed its rage. No bullets hit the train for a full minute, and the shouting from under. The train ceased. Sam heard men cheering outside. He crawled toward the window of shattered glass. What he thought, what he saw outside was the most beautiful sight in the world. An old vintage armored World War II personal carrier spun around on its huge rubber tires, spraying the bush with bullets from twin machine guns mounted on top. The big gun blazed and threw a flame six feet from end... Uh, from the end of the barrel. Off in the bush, Sam could see figures scurrying away from the train. Cheering began up and down the train as more and more people recognized their salvation. Sam heard the telltale whistle of an incoming artillery and an explosion nearly flipped the old vehicle on its side. It slammed back to the ground, its wheels on one side failing, falling into the bomb crater. It tipped into the crater and sat there immobile as if stunned. There was the whistle of another shell, just as all six wheels on the faithful old machine turned to the ground. It lurched up out of the hole in a roar of smoke, dust, and bravado. Seconds later, another shell landed in the exact spot where it had been. Sam could see that the left side of the armor was dented in nearly a foot, but the old machine roared ahead, blazing from the twin machine guns overhead. It zigzagged through the bush, firing almost steadily. It was gone nearly half an hour. When it returned, it was nearly destroyed. It limped back to the train, its wheels on the side of the explosion bent and wobbling severely. One of the big guns was drooping as if it had gotten too hot. Its side was poked with bullet holes, some appearing to almost have penetrated its armor. Then the big machine halted, spun slowly to face outward, and the motor clanged to a stop. A steel hatch slammed open on top, followed by a blue cloud of smoke. A head head appeared in the smoke and looked around. A large man climbed out on top of the tank. He looked much too large to have been inside the tank. He was dressed in a khaki-colored uniform and had a huge handlebar mustache. He was broad of shoulder and slim of hip. His whole demeanor was confident, yet shaken. His smile displayed a wide gap between his front teeth. "'Daddy!' melody and marcia screamed simultaneously and bolted from the cabin daddy daddy they cried as they punched past people in the narrow hallway and leaped from the train to the ground sam was just jumping to the ground as their father caught them both in an effortless move he lifted them one in each arm and swung them around daddy daddy they cried holding on to him with all their passion and love i made it he bellowed repeatedly in a voice much too loud I found my babies in time. I came for you. I did it. His voice was huge and booming. He made no effort to suppress the tears running down his cheeks. Daddy, you came for us. Thank you. Marcia nearly screamed at him. You lost your shoe, he shouted at her, looking perplexed. No, Daddy, I'm happy you came. What's the same? He shouted back. The girls gave each other worried looks. Daddy, what's wrong? This is no time for a song, he shouted and roared with laughter. Sam taped tapped Melody on the shoulder. He merely glanced at them. He's deafened by the gunfire and explosions, he said to her back. She nodded. She had already figured that out. Melody made hand signs to him, and he nodded. Yes, he shouted. The bloody explosion and bloody machine gunfire deafened me. It will pass. Give me a few minutes, I'll it better bloody well pass. Marcia said something about cursing, which he misinterpreted. He ignored his nonsensical response. or she did. Two other men climbed from the old war machine and were surrounded by cheering people. They were equally deaf but had no difficulty understanding the joy and adulation the people lavished upon them. When everyone on the train had come to thank their rescuers, there were about 150 people. In a few minutes, his hearing improved and he demanded to speak to the engineer. A man in a conductor's uniform informed him that the engineer had been killed in the wreck. It took a few minutes to get the people back onto the train and assemble the remaining railroad passengers marcia melody and sam were invited to stay melody introduced sam while they were waiting for the passengers to return to the train daddy this is elder sam Mahoy. he took good care of us while you were coming he is our friend our very good friend she added donovan Macleodney." M- he said taking Sa- Sa- he didn't stutter in the book that's just me <laughs> going from page to page uh donovan mckelvaney he said taking sam's hand in a powerful grip so you're the mormon missionary on the train i thank you for taking care of my babies you will find that my gratitude means something young man thank you pleasure sir was all sam could think to say a part of him wondered how he knew he was the mormon missionary on the train he dismayed the thought and once the railroad people had gathered donovan started speaking without preamble or introduction I have just driven out over 200 kilometers. Four vehicles started out, but the rest broke down partway here. Thank God they have weapons and food, though, and are expecting reinforcements. My poor vehicle is out of petrol and out of ammunition, he said as he looked at the old armored vehicle. I'm afraid the old girl has fought her last battle, he added wistfully. Then his demeanor quickly turned businesslike. We are in the bushlands of Botswana, as you know. Shortly after the train left Bulawayo, a rebel faction declared civil war and threatened to disrupt transportation. As soon as I heard that, I organized a private force and launched out after the train and my girls. I was afraid I wouldn't get here fast enough. Thank God his voice trailed off. The point is, we can't expect help from Rhodesia, as they are trying to negotiate a treaty with Botswana as we speak. We can't expect help from South Africa, since this is the Rhodesian Express train, and they have no legal right to interfere. In short, we are on our own. We can't stay here. The rebels will go for reinforcements. And as soon as they realize I am by myself, they will attack you with everything they have. As some of you may have correctly surmised earlier, they are not after hostages. They intend to kill us after they have... Donovan didn't finish the sentence. It required little imagination to understand what he didn't say. We must get started immediately. My chums are about a day's march away, and if we march all night, we can reach them by late tomorrow. If we stay here, we are certainly doomed. A chorus of agreement rose from the passengers. Sam was about to agree, but felt a reluctance flow through him. He pondered for a moment, trying to determine its origin. He bowed his head and supplicated with all his soul. The stakes were high, and he did not want to misunderstand. He closed his eyes and sought guidance, searching for, searching the inner reaches of his soul. A feeling of peace flowed over him, and he rejoiced. "'Sam, Sam!' He started to realize Melody was speaking to him and opened his eyes and started to realize everyone was looking at him, waiting. "'Sorry,' he mumbled. "'Sam, what is it? You look troubled,' she asked, placing a hand on his arm solicitously. "'I... he wondered what he should say. He didn't know what they should do. He only knew what they shouldn't do. They should not start walking back to Rhodesia.' "'I don't think we should start walking to Rhodesia,' he said quietly. "'Why not, man?' Donovan demanded in a booming voice, We're less than 50 kilometers from the Rhodesian border. We can't stay here. It's over 300 kilometers to South Africa. I'm not sure. I only know that we shouldn't go toward Rhodesia. Look, lad, Donovan said, his voice lowered in a patronizing way. I know you're scared. I am too. But I have been fighting these bloody rebels for over 20 years. I know how they think. They'll be back about daylight tomorrow. There are food, ammunition, and friends less than 50 clicks from here. Logic dictates that we must go that direction. I'm not speaking of logic. I'm saying that I feel that we should not head north. If we must leave, it should be to the south. What you're saying doesn't make sense, lad. I'm not claiming it does. I'm just saying it's, it's the right thing to do. Well, okay, let's put it to a vote. He raised his voice. All who want to head north, raise your hand. Everyone except Sam, raised his or her hand. All who want to go to the south, raise your hand. Sam timidly raised his hand. He was the only one however just as donovan was about to speak melody raised her hand melody what are you doing baby you're coming with me back home donovan thundered his voice sure and demanding melody cleared her throat all the time looking steadfastly on sam without lowering her hand she says i'm going with sam daddy you take the others and go north but why he thundered the mormon doesn't know this country i do "'I came to take you home, and that's what I'm going to do,' he concluded with finality. "'Without looking away from Sam,' she said, "'are you prepared to hog tie me and carry me sc- screaming and kicking 50 kilometers?' "'No. Then I'll be going with Sam.' "'Tell me why. At least give me the satisfaction of explaining your foolishness. "'Give me something to write on your grave marker,' at least he concluded with frustration." Daddy, forgive me, I trust you, and I'm so grateful you came for us, but you see, before you saved us, there were bombs bursting and machine guns firing and people screaming, and I was terrified, but Sam wasn't. I asked him why, and he said because he knew we were going to be safe. Daddy, he knew something that seemed illogical at the time. He believed something that seemed foolish and impossible. Donovan grunted as if to say that what Sam was now going to do was foolish as well melody ignored her father when sam told us those things he had a particular look on his face a look of calmness and peace he has that same look now look at him daddy and you'll see it i don't see a bloody thing i see a bleedin' yank mormon fool a bleedin' yank mormon fool that's what i see donovan leered at sam as if pretending to see beyond the obvious sam was surprised at melody's words yet they were true He didn't want to be their leader or to be contrary to Donovan. He just knew, as surely as he knew anything, that he should not be going north with them. If necessary, he was to remain here alone. While these thoughts were going through his mind, Donovan's expression changed and softened somehow. Unexpectedly, Marcia turned toward her dad. I'm staying with Elder Sam, too. I can see that expression, same as before. Daddy, please don't make us go north. I'm afraid we'll all be killed. Do Do what Sam says, please, she pleaded bloody donovan exploded he scrubbed his face with both hands as if dry washing it you two stubborn women will be the death of me you're just like your mother god rest her sweet soul and you sam the mormon are going to be the death of us all if you are wrong we are all dead you know i won't leave my babies but you would better know this if you're wrong i'm going to save my last bullet and put it between your eyes do you understand me sam swallowed hard "'This was a serious threat. "'He considered apologizing or offering a compromise "'or or waffling somehow, but he knew he should not. "'Instead, he excused himself and walked into the bush. "'When he had gone a short distance and was beyond hearing, "'he knelt upon the sandy red soil "'and prayed with all the energy of his soul. "'It seemed as if a long time elapsed "'before he felt comfortable with what he must do. "'He returned to the train and found Donovan, "'who was still grumbling. "'Donovan, I wish to travel south.' Since Melody and Marcia are planning to come with me, and I know nothing in the bush, about the bush, or the survival in the bush, I would be grateful for your company and leadership. I don't mean to cause you problems, and I am humbly asking for your help and protection. Donovan stood and faced him. A multitude of expressions crossed his face before they merely nodded. He turned toward the train employees. Tell the passengers I am leaving to travel south. I will conduct anyone who wishes to go with me. Tell them no guarantees. It will be hard and dangerous, but... Uh, less dangerous than staying here. Tell them if they wish to travel north, they uh, they should just travel and follow my old tracks. Divide whatever food is left equally among the passengers. We leave in 30 minutes. The group scattered to pass the word. Melody and Marcia returned to the train to get spare clothes and their violins. Sam tied some things into a small bundle around his scriptures. He picked up his coat, camera, and extra roll of film. Everything else would have to catch up with him later, if ever. It was nearly noon by the time they struck out. Approximately half the passengers on the train joined them. About 50 people remained aboard the train, and about 20 people started north toward Rhodesia. Most of the railroad employees remained in the train. Of the nearly 75 people in their group going south, well over half were black. They picked up their bundles of food, balanced their baggage on their heads, and strode off with an easy gait. They hummed or sang as they walked and seemed peacefully at ease, perfectly at ease. Sam picked up a box filled with loaves of bread and carried it under one arm. Under his other arm, he held a bundle of clothes. In just a few minutes, his arms were aching, and he was struggling to hold onto the box. A young African girl caught up with him, and through hand signals was made him understand that she wished to carry the box. Though awkward, it wasn't heavy, and Sam felt silly surrendering it to a young woman. She persisted, and he handed it to her. She wrapped a sweater around the top of her head and... Uh, Deftly balanced the box on her head. She smiled at him, took her own bundle of small clothes, and tossed it onto the top of the box. It landed neatly in the middle of the box, with one hand on a corner to steady it. As she turned, she began walking briskly away. He smiled and caught up with Melody. They walked along the train tracks, stepping from tie to tie. The black folk seemed to prefer walking among the bushes weaving in and out, making their way. He could see parcels bouncing just above the tops of the bushes on both sides of the tracks. Donovan led the way, walking at a moderate pace. His eyes constantly scanned the countryside as they heard and saw nothing but an endless reach of train track and desert. As it began to grow dark, they stopped and built small fires. Donovan insisted that they build small, smokeless fires. He had to show them how. The blacks already knew how and deftly built small cook fires. They passed out their meager rations. Sam got two slices of bread and a tin of sardines. He hated sardines, but he was so hungry they actually tasted good. He sat by Melody as they ate. During the entire hour that they ate and rested, neither of them spoke, but they communicated just the same. It was spiritual and deeply personal. When it was time to leave, Donovan carefully extinguished their campfires and strode off into the twilight. At first, Sam felt it impossible to walk on the ties in the darkness, but he soon got the rhythm of it and found that he could do pretty well. Eventually, he ended up holding Marcia's right hand and Melody's left. Between them, they could keep lined up on the tracks and stop each other from falling and hurting themselves. When daylight finally peeked above the horizon, they were bone-weary, and their ankles, shins, and knees were scraped and raw from numerous falls. Donovan called a halt, and again they built small fires sam nibbled on bread while melody slept against his shoulder marcia found her father and curled up beside him he let them sleep for several hours sam awoke to the feeling of warmth on his face he opened his eyes to broad daylight and the welcoming african sun melody had slumped to the ground her head resting lightly in his lap he resisted the urge to stroke her air instead he took off his jacket and laid it over her she stirred and seemed to sleep more peacefully They were just beginning to stand and stretch their limbs when Sam heard the distant thrum of a helicopter. Donovan shouted for everyone to get into the bush. They ran into the trees and tried to hide. In a few minutes, a big helicopter passed over them, moving fast and low to the ground. It suddenly looped around and came back to their campsite. Sam could see men through the cockpit glass. A man stood at a machine gun in the open side door. There were no markings on the helicopter other than it was being painted in a sand-colored camouflage pattern. A speaker squawked, and a man's voice boomed across the desert. Greetings from the South African Air Force. Glad to see you are all right. The voice bore a heavy South African accent and sounded cheerful. We will radio in your location and proceed on to the train wreck. Please remain at this location. A train is on its way and should arrive at your position in several hours. You are safe here. Good luck. Goodbye. The big chopper turned and powered away. It was obvious they were in a hurry. Everyone cheered and hugged each other. Melody hugged Sam and ran to find her father. They built a roaring father fire and consumed all the rest of their food and water. Donovan sought out Sam. He arrived with his daughter on each arm. They sat down by him, and after a few minutes, Donovan handed him another tin of sardines with a smile. It was as much of an apology as a big man has ever made, and it was sufficient. The train arrived as promised, and concerned men in uniforms helped them on board. There were no sleeper cars, only military-style coaches. Sam sat by himself and Donovan and his daughter squeezed onto a bench meant for two. The train was heavily armed, with soldiers in every car. One of the cars ahead of them was a train version of an army tank, with a heavy cannon and many machine guns protruding from slots in its sloping sides. Sam felt perfectly safe and was soon asleep. He awoke later as the brakes squealed. They ground to a stop. Sam followed Donovan... "...out onto the ground. They had arrived back at the train wreck. The train had been heavily bombed. Only a few people had survived. They told a tearful story of trying to fight against hopeless odds. The helicopter had finally delivered them from certain destruction. The survivors were helped aboard the train. The big helicopter settled onto a flat car on the train and refueled. A short time later, it headed north. It was gone just a little over an hour when it returned. It landed back... "'on the flat car, and the train began its journey south. "'Except for meals, Sam slept the entire trip. "'They arrived in Pretoria 23 hours later. "'President and Sister Carlson met Sam and hustled him away. "'As they were leaving the train station, "'they unexpectedly ran into Donovan, Marcia, and Melody, "'climbing into a cab. "'Donovan waved vigorously and trotted up to Sam. "'The girls close on his heels, "'Sam introduced them to the Carlsons, and they shook hands.' "'Without preamble, Donovan said, "'Did you hear about the group who walked north toward Rhodesia?' "'Sam shook his head. He was not anxious for more bad news. "'They were ambushed. No survivors.' "'Sam dropped his head, his heart heavy. It seemed such a short time ago. "'When I agreed to follow your illogical suggestion and head south,' Donovan stated. "'Interrupting his thoughts, "I, I threatened you. I meant what I said. "'What I didn't say, however, was that if you were right, I would be profoundly grateful.' "'I owe you a great deal, young man. "'If there is anything I can do for you, anything at all.' "'It just so happens that there is something,' Sam said, "'pulling his leather-bound Book of Mormon from his small bundle of possessions. "'He held it out. "'I will consider the debt settled if you will read this book and sincerely pray about it.' "'Donovan took the book, looked at the title, and smiled. (laughs) "'You Mormons don't give up easily, do you?' he said, chuckling. "'I'll gladly do as you ask.' "'God bless you, Elder Sam, Mahoy," he added, as he squeezed Sam's hand without shaking it. The grip was so fierce that it brought tears to Sam's eyes, but they were tears of joy. Donovan shoved a hand into one of the many pockets in his vest and pulled out a tiny parcel tied in a white cloth. He nodded to Sam and handed him a little bundle. Then he spun on a hill and walked briskly away, hands clasped behind his back. Marcia gave Sam a warm hug and turned away. Melody paused briefly. Unsure of what to say, then she impulsively held him for a while. It was much more than a hug. She kissed him on both cheeks, blinking tears from her eyes. She turned and walked away, no words could have been adequate to express the feelings of deep sadness mingled with joy that coursed through her heart. Sam and the Carlsons had driven many miles before in heavy silence before Sam remembered the little bundle. He carefully unwrapped it and to his astonishment found a perfectly cut diamond, the size of his thumbnail journal entry, May 12th, 1975. I only have one more thought to add to what I have already written about Rhodesia. I find myself thinking about Melody, not in a romantic or worldly way, but in a way that makes me feel as if our lives will intersect again. I wish I had kept a copy of the blessing I gave her on the train. I remember something about her going full circle and coming back to that moment. I don't know what it means, but I feel myself involved in her life again, perhaps in a distant future. I take that back. I do feel romantic. Strike that too. I love her. I suddenly realize that I have never loved a woman before. Not like this. It is exquisitely sweet and sharply painful. I don't like the feeling of discovering love and losing it at the same time. And it is also not the kind of feeling any decent missionary should have. So I won't tell a soul. President Carlson has kept me at the mission home for nearly a week. He doesn't let me go out attracting teaching or anything. I have been filling mission papers in the office. He says I need a rest. He spent a lot of time on the phone. I know he is trying to find out exactly what happened on the train. I told him the entire event and showed him the diamond. He took it without promising to return it. He didn't seem angry, but he also didn't seem pleased. I think I get into too many unusual problems for his perception of a good missionary. Well, I can now add one more item to my list of things I never want to be when I grow up. I don't want to be a clerk or a typist. Elder Mahoy, my boy, come, sit down, President Carlson said cheerfully, waving Sam to an overstuffed leather chair. Sam sat, a feeling of weariness overcoming him. He wasn't looking forward to this interview. President Carlson pulled his chair from behind the ornate desk around to where they were nearly touching knees. He smiled and sat with one elbow propped against the corner of his desk. Elder... I apologize for keeping you cooped up in this mission home this last week. I know you've been anxious to get on with your mission. In all candor, I've spent the last 10 days on the phone with nearly every government agency in South Africa and Rhodesia. Almost without exception, they have been glowing in the reports of your conduct on the train. The glaring exception to this is the Rhodesian... Emb- embassy who feels that your involvement in urging the people to go southward was an affront to the rebels they were negotiating with and in doing so inadvertently led to the attack on the remainder of the train president I. sam began but was cut off by the upraised hand and a friendly smile of dismissal No need to defend yourself, son. I'm satisfied that your actions saved many lives. I'm also certain that if you had stayed, you would have been killed along with the rest. The difficult part of all this has been keeping you away from reporters and out of the newspapers. They have been clamoring for your story. I hope you don't mind that I have shielded you from that. It was not a question, and Sam shook his head slightly and stared at his hands in his lap. All this was news to him, and he honestly did not want publicity. Notoriety would make the rest of his mission impossible. With a thoughtful look, President Carlson leaned back in his chair and mused, "'What I don't understand is how you managed to get yourself into so many difficult circumstances. "'Mind you, I know you don't plan them, but how do you seem to attract them? "'You're the only missionary, the only one, for whom I have had to intercede with the government. "'Once to bail you out for jail, after being flogged, and again to keep you from becoming a national hero. "'You are a most unusual young man, Elder Sam Mahoy.'" Sam didn't know what to say, so he kept quiet. This only seemed to make President Carlson more curious. Sam sensed what his question was, but waited for him to ask it. Elder, why do you have these astonishing experiences? Sam evaded the question. President, my grandfather used to say, if you aren't making waves, you don't have... Let's see. If you aren't making waves, you don't have your oars in the water. President Carlson chuckled, but waited politely for Sam to continue. He wasn't going to be put off by a clever answer. In reality, Sam was aching to understand it himself. "'President, I'm not sure I understand myself "'why these things are happening to me. "'I certainly don't want them. "'I would not I would be grateful if you would explain it to me. "'I'm afraid I'm not good for the mission. "'I seem to get in a lot of trouble without asking for it. "'If you want to send me home, I wouldn't blame you,' he said meekly. "'Nothing could be further from my intent,' President Carlson replied. "'His voice filled with surprise. "'My only reason for asking is to see if you are understood what is going on in your life. I sure don't, Sam responded dejectedly. Have you studied the life of Joseph Smith, Elder Mahoy? A little, but not as much as I'd like to. You are of course aware that he lived a life that moved from one difficulty to another. His life was a continual course of tragedies and setbacks along with unsurpassing spiritual peaks. He certainly paid a high price for his righteousness, Sam observed, and that is the key, President Carlson added quickly. Opposition is always meted out in direct proportion to righteousness. The greater our efforts and ability to serve God, the greater the opposition. It is my opinion that you experience what seems to be more than your share of trials, because you try harder than most to be obedient and effective in your calling. It doesn't seem fair, Sam observed quietly. Oh, but it is. It's perfectly fair and just and according to divine law. Through all ages of time, those who have set the course of their lives in service of God have, by that same course, brought into their lives great trials. Consider this, my boy, that every one of these truth-seeking saints rejoiced in their trials as well as in their spiritual blessings. I am convinced that if we were able to question them, they would bear powerful testimony that the reward is gloriously worth any price. I am concerned about you, it is true, but you have but you must understand that my concern is not that you have trials. My concern is that you don't, that they don't defeat you. You must never interpret that as having opposition in your life indicates that God has abandoned you, or that you are failing in your calling. Do you understand? Yes and no, Sam admitted. I do feel like a failure at times, and I sometimes feel I won't be able to bear up under uh, under my trials. I constantly feel I need to apologize to you and to the Lord, yet in my heart I feel Heavenly Father never failing in love, and I do rejoice in my blessings. It's kind of a confusing to feel both ways, President. No doubt, Elder, of course, I think it's important to observe that we can bring trials into our lives through unrighteousness and disobedience. It would be foolish to assert that our trials, uh, that all trials, are a result of opposition arising from righteousness. I understand that, President. I'm sure you do. However, I think it's equally important to point out that these trials on your mission are obviously a result of your righteous efforts to serve the Lord. That being the case, I want you to fast and pray until you no longer feel like a failure because of your trials. All such feelings do not come from the Holy Ghost. I hadn't considered that, Sam admitted, his mood lifting. Think about it until you understand it and believe me with all your heart. At the same time, pray for courage and strength, equal to your faith, It would be tragic if you were not able to endure these trials that your strivings for righteousness ordained. Along with a spiritual fortitude to press forward into righteousness, we must call upon God to give us the moral courage to endure the outcome, which includes fantastic blessings and great trials. I'm not sure I have the courage you speak of. I have felt utterly defeated so many times on my mission I could write a book about it. President Carlson chuckled and made a dismissive motion with his hand. You say that, but here you are, ready to move forward. I think you have plenty of courage. Perhaps you need to rely less on your courage and more upon the Lord. You will have to work that out with him, but never let your heart faint or become discouraged in these matters. I will try, President. I really will. Very good, President Carlson said, enthusiastically ending the subject. Now, I have one more item to discuss with you. Yes, sir, Sam replied, unsure again. I am calling you to serve as the district leader in the Natal district. You will have a new missionary directly from the states and will be leaving this afternoon for your new assignment. Journal entry, May 20th, 1975. Transferred to the, again, this time to Durban, in Natal, near the Cape. I will have a new companion straight from the LTM and will be the district leader in the Natal district. President Carlson is wonderful. He expressed the utmost confidence in me when he called me to the position. After talking to him, I feel a new hope and lifting of my spirits. Who's counting? But I only have seven months left on my mission. I feel like I haven't gotten anything done yet.